0: Honored to have the opportunity again to open the Word of God together and look to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be there in the twenty-second chapter, beginning in verses twenty-three through forty-six. Um, how many of you in this room enjoy taking tests or exams? Any anybody in here like, man, you just enjoy? I see a hand. Okay. Any of you here is like, man, I just cannot wait to have for another test, another exam. I look forward to it right? The reality is for most of us, tests bring like stress and anxiety, don't they? Like, I mean, you just, you start to wrestle with some of that. And the truth is like not all tests are equal, right? Like some tests determine like how you do in a class, but another test may determine if you get a scholarship or not, right? Like some tests may determine if you get your license, super important, but another test may determine if you get a job or not. Like the reality is tests are stressful. They're, ang- they're they bring anxiety about, um, the reality is like, the truth, um, typically what tests, is they involve questions, and questions themselves usually create tension, right? They, they create a tension in your in your mind, in, in your inner thoughts, right? You're just kind of wrestling with, like, oh, what's the possible answers? What's the outcome to this? How am I to answer this question? And so questions are, are good. They're helpful, right? The intention is to help us understand what do we actually know about the exam that we're taking, the test that we're taking, right? They're, they're hopeful to help us reveal that, and so... In today's text, there's some tests or some questions that are asked. It's, again, Jesus is being asked. We're going to deal with two of those questions that he's asked. And i give you a spoiler alert. He passes both tests. And then the text finishes by Jesus asking us a question. A question that, in fact, will determine your and my eternity. It's a valuable question that you and I should give attention to today. And so before we look to the question that Jesus asked of us, let's look to the questions that were asked of him. So, again, let's real wrestle with this idea that Jesus passes the test. The first question that we, re- we wrestle with today is this. Is the resurrection even possible? Remember, it's Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' earthly life. On Friday, he'll be crucified on the cross. On Sunday, by the power of God, he'll be raised from the dead. Many things have been unfolding there in the temple Right. As he's been teaching and healing, they've been praising his name, declaring that he's the truly the Messiah. There's much tension in the air. There's much tension and wrestling with the religious leaders. And so we come to this verse 23. It says the same day. So, again, remember that last week we wrestled with taxes. We talked about Benjamin Franklin, 1789 letter, right, where he says two things in life are certain. They're what? Death and taxes. And last week we dealt with taxes. Now we come to the issue of death. And so it says that same day, after Jesus has already been wrestling with culture and paying to Caesar what is Caesar's, it says the Sadducees came to him. And the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection. We're going to hear more about them in a moment. But, and they ask him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. All right, so listen, several things here about the the, the Sadducees, right? The text told us already the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, right? So they come asking a question about the resurrection. What's their intent? To expose how foolish it is to believe in the resurrection, Right, Their intention is they're putting Jesus to the test. They're trying to question him with a question they think is absolutely foolish. And to show how silly it is to believe in an afterlife, they ask this convoluted question to say, well, guess what? Moses, back in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25, l- lists for us that, hey, if a man has a wife and he dies and they have no children, his brother is to marry her, and the first son that they have will be in the brother, dead brother's name so that his legacy continues on. And so they give the example, well, guess what? He dies, and she marries a second brother on down to the seventh. And guess what? None of them have any children. the question is, now in the afterlife, whose wife will she be? That's the question they're after, right? It's it's, it's kind of this big question. But the reality is the Sadducees are important, right? They're educated. They're they're the priestly family. Uh, They comprise much of the Sanhedrin. Think about our Supreme Court. In that day, it had 71 rulers in it, right, that sat on, on their Supreme Court, their Sanhedrin Council, giving decisions for the people. Much of the, many of them are Sadducees. The Sadducees believe only in the first five books of the Old Testament, right, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, also called the Pentateuch, right? And, and so they believe those are the only divine books. And guess what? For the reality, much of it, there's not a lot about the resurrection, or so it seems. In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. And so they think, Jesus, all the people who believe in an afterlife are absolutely foolish. And maybe you've heard that, right? I I remember sharing the gospel with a man one day, and he just said, man, listen, I understand you're a Christian or you're a preacher or whatever, and and you need the afterlife. That's kind of like your crutch, right? That makes you feel better. helps you deal with hard things. I was like, no, man, brother, this is the word of God. I accept it by faith. I understand that. And you and I may disagree on that, but I accept the afterlife because it is indeed the word of God. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has put eternity in your and my heart. That the reason why you wrestle with that there must be something beyond this, the scriptures tell us it's because God has put that thought and desire in your and my heart. And so they ask this question right again. Well, whose wife will she be right there in verse twenty eight? For they all had her. Now listen, part of what's, what's difficult for the Sadducees is, is that, again, they only understand the first five books. And so they wouldn't understand passages or acknowledge passages like Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. that says these words, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, speaks of the resurrection. Listen what it says. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the Sadducees, right, are here, and the reality is they wouldn't acknowledge books like Isaiah or Daniel because they're not of the first five books. They're not the divine books, according to them. And so they thought that, guess what, Acts chapter 23 talks about. Um, The Sadducees says they deny the resurrection, they deny angels, they deny spirits. The Sadducees simply think this, that the body and the soul perish at death. They think, you know what, when you die this life, that's all there is. So for them, it's foolish to consider an afterlife, and this example they give Jesus proves their very point. The reality is there's not much example of this this Leverite law from Deuteronomy 25 actually even practiced in the Old Testament. I mean, you think of maybe a few examples like Ruth and Boaz, right, where he comes in as this kinsman redeemer. But the reality is it likely wasn't even practices in Jesus' day. And the question is, how will Jesus respond to this test, this question? And listen to his answer, beginning in verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Listen to his statement. You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And so Jesus says, listen, if you want to understand the resurrection, two things are absolutely crucial. One, you must understand the scriptures rightly. And secondly, you must understand the power of God. And so Jesus begins first with this idea of the power of God. And look what he says in verse 34, right? So again, four. this is his example. Here's why I'm saying this. Here's my proof for it. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. by god's design it says that marriage ends in this life for some of you that's going to feel like a downer right like you can't imagine not being with your spouse like that in eternity for others of you depending on your station of life like that may be like whoo that's a relief right that's just a reality but what's important here is that jesus says listen guys you must understand the power of god the power of god is so great that God is going to transform the next life, that our most intimate of relationships will in fact be surpassed. It's hard. We, listen, you can't even fathom it today, right? You're wrestling like thinking, how in the world is that going to work? Like you're kind of like the Sadducees, like, dude, like I, I just don't understand. How's that going to work in the next life? And Jesus says the key to understanding it, one, is the Scriptures. We'll come to it in a moment. But secondly, you must understand the power of God. And God is going to so redeem and transform your and my heart that even our most intimate, sacred relationships here on earth, husband and woman, right? Husband and wife, the most intimate, most exposed. He says, I want you to know that in the life to come, they will be surpassed by the intimacy we have ultimately with our Savior and with one another. That's what a moment, right? I think it's important too, like just maybe just for a moment of teaching right here, Look what he says. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like what? Like angels in heaven. Notice he says like angels. This is important. He doesn't say that we become angels. Listen, I I get that thought. I hear it a lot, especially at funeral homes. I I just want to be gentle, right, because I know some of you may hold that truth, but that's not affirmed in the Scriptures. The Scriptures affirm that you and I are created in the image of God. He made us as humans. And guess what? That means in the next life you don't become angels. You remain human, right, and you're going to receive a resurrected body just like Christ has his resurrected body. So this is God's design, but he says uses the point to show what? That angels are not marrying. There's not procreation among spiritual creatures right now happening in the heavenly realms. It's not. God created the angels. So it says that we are going to be like the angels that we will not marry in heaven. So I think that's just an important point. I think also maybe it's just for a moment here. It's kind of an apologetic, and the word indicates a defense. It's against the Mormons who think that when you get to heaven, right, that you're going to marry, you're going to have spirit children. All these things are going to happen that they even now, right, are, are, are having marriages in their temple. They're like our eternal marriages, so to speak. And so it kind of guarantees that's what's going to happen. Guys. No matter what we may think or want, like, listen, I've told you, like, it, it doesn't matter what I think. The scriptures are, are king. They're boss. They trump. So so it doesn't matter if that's what Joseph Smith said or that's what Blake Jesse said or the greatest guy who thinks he's a prophet or designating himself as such. The truth is only in the scriptures. And Jesus says that in the resurrection. Right. Notice he says in the resurrection, not simply at the resurrection. He's speaking of the age itself that we will not marry. So there's a defense right there as Christian believers of why you view the scriptures differently it's because of christ's words and in places just like this matthew 22 30. so jesus says first if you want to understand the resurrection you have to understand the power of god to transform relationships secondly says if you want to understand the resurrection you must understand the scriptures and watch what jesus does this is absolutely like this is awesome sauce. watch what he does right here. i love this verse 31 of matthew 22. and as for the resurrection of the dead have you not read what was said to you by God? And watch what he does. He goes to guess what? Exodus chapter three, verse six. Why? Because the Sadducees acknowledge that Exodus as a second book of the Bible is one of the only five divine books. He goes to their book. He says, listen, you guys acknowledge this is a divine book. It's from God. You acknowledge what Moses said. I'll tell you what Moses said. This is absolutely a beautiful power play by our Savior. Watch this. His, his brilliancy. No, remember, listen. Jesus hasn't been trained in the schools of the rabbis, right? They're they're like in some vernacular, they say, this is a hick from the sticks, like he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Some of you, again, you may feel that because you haven't grown up in the right family. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe you hear the culture saying, you're just from Greensburg, Kentucky. What good could come from there? Let our Savior be the reminder that God can raise up anyone from anywhere, anytime to do His work. Amen? Let our children hope in the Savior today. If you haven't grown up in a place too small or too forgotten by God, God is able to raise you up and use you to reach the nations from right here at Greensburg, Kentucky. Let the church say amen. Let's let our kids hear that. Our Savior shows us and reminds us of this beautiful truth. He's from a small out-of-the-way place. But look what he does. He says, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the what? The living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Right. Notice how Jesus verifies the resurrection. It's simply in verb tense. Right. But watch this. This is beautiful. Just a simple statement. Verse 32. He says, I. I. What? I am. Back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, the burning bush is happening. Moses comes and God speaks to him and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice his tense. He doesn't say, I was. Why is this important? Because when Moses comes to the burning bush, guess what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for hundreds of years. And God says to Moses, and Jesus points it out to us now, to say, guys, listen. For those who die in faith, and we would understand as dying in faith in Christ, he says, I want you to know that God is always their God. They have not ceased to exist. They are not in some place of soul sleep. He says that I want you to know that what happens at death. Again, this is important because some of you are wrestling with that. What happens when you die? And for those of us who are in Christ, Jesus himself affirms the words of God to Moses saying, I am presently at this moment the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Yes, they have died physically, but I want you to know that to be absent from the body is to be what, church? Present with the Lord. What a moment of our Savior, right? It reminds us that God's covenant with us does not end at death. What a moment of relief. What a moment of treasuring, right? I mean, just consider for a moment, I don't know about you, but how many of you, maybe just by a raise of hands, someone that you love has died? Yeah, my assumption is most of us have experienced that at some point, right? Consider this now, just for a moment, as you think about that. Did the moment of death cause you to stop loving that person? My assumption is for most of you, like you experienced probably even a greater intensity of love, like you experienced some deep emotion and Things Maybe you weren't even aware that was down there so deep. You didn't realize that you could miss somebody like that. Just that deep love that you have. Well, what's my point? Well, My point is, if we as humans are able to love those that have died like that, we haven't stopped loving them at death, then, guys, how much more the living God is able to love us and keep us and bring us to himself. This is a moment of hope, just that simple verb tense in Exodus chapter 3. I am. Might you today think about those that you love who have died in Christ? They are followers of Jesus. Might you, in the place of hearing, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, might you just hear the Savior say to you, I am the God of that person whom you love who was in Christ has died? What a moment of hope. What a moment of peace. Right? Jesus can answer, guys, our greatest question. He affirms that he is God. Again, this is just this beautiful moment of hope that those that you love have, again, I I hear this thought process at times that we go into this state of like soul sleep and we're just like in this nothingness existence until Jesus comes at the resurrection. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. That's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches for the believer, the body stays in the ground, but the soul goes to be with the Lord. And I think for some of you, you have to wrestle with the reality today that you're not in Christ. And you have to hear Daniel chapter 12 say to you that some will be raised to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. As Ambie and I tried to wade in those warm waters today, I was just like, man, I, I just can't do it. I needed something to change the temperature. I couldn't stand that level of heat. Guys, I want you and I to know that we cannot stand the holy judgment of God. And the only thing that will satisfy, the only thing that will satisfy his red, white, hot anger is the death of his son in your place. It's the only hope of salvation, beloved. I want to compel you this moment to look unto Christ. So Jesus has now wrestled with, with taxes and death, and he he's, he's KO'd them, right? I mean, Jesus is just knocking it out of the park. And now they come with maybe even a more challenging question. It's this. What is the greatest commandment? Have you ever thought about that? How might you answer that? What's the greatest commandment? Listen to what the question is. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together like, Well, listen, man, he he just got that one, but we'll get a question he can't answer. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him this question. Notice again, it's to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Why is this important? Because guess what? According to Old Testament law, they have 613 of them. 613 laws? And what often happened is they were parsed out that some were lighter laws and some were heavier laws. And they're like, well, Jesus, even amongst the heavier laws, like, which one's the most important? It was a trap. Like, who can answer a question of 613 laws to say this is the most important law? So they're after it, right? I mean, it's exhausting. Can you imagine the people trying to keep up with all these laws? And listen to Jesus' answer in verse 37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So Jesus says to them, listen, it's interesting, right? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Come on, say it with me. All your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus is citing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and maybe you've heard of it. It's called the Shema, right? That comes from the first word there. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? Guess what? religious jewish people would recite that very verse twice daily in fact most of them would have it plastered above their homes and their houses this was a verse they knew well and he says listen guys this is important if you've ever wondered what is most valuable to god jesus says it is to love god to love him with all your heart with all your soul right notice that heart soul and mind this doesn't mean that like some people like well i'm more of a heart person and well, I'm an old soul that really loves the Lord. And while well, I think more with my mind, I love. No, this is a way of saying that we are to love Jesus with all of our being, our entire life. Heart, soul, mind. Some translations may even say strength. The indication is not to parse up your life into different different ways of, of dealing with God. It's saying to say that you and I are to love God with all of our being. Every moment of our life is to be loved by Him. But Jesus says, listen, I know you asked me what's the first or the greatest commandment, but I want you to know that the second one's so close to it that you can't really separate them, to. It's kind of like two sides of the same coin. Listen to what he says, verse 39. And a second is like it. You shall what, church? Love your neighbor as yourself. Man, that, that alone, like, take that with you today. Apply that to your life. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, he says, loving God, loving people. Really simple. Love God, love people. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It is beautifully simplistic. Love God, love people. You may see that here. You see it on our buses. see different things. It's it's rooted right here in Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Love God, love people. It's beautifully simplistic, but the reality is it's impossibly difficult. I mean, let's be, let's be honest for a moment. Like, loving God, if we consider who God is, he's perfect, he's holy, he's created us, right? I mean, like, that feels like that's fair. But how is it to love your annoying neighbor or a nagging spouse or love the person of the opposite political party? To love them as you love yourself? I mean, let's be honest. Who can stand I mean, let's be honest, though, even asking the question, who of us, even this morning, have loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength? Perfectly. And the reality is, he says, this is where the law and the prophets, this is where everything hangs. It's all upon our love. The truth is, all of us here are guilty in light of that. Guys, this moment cries out to us, look to Jesus as the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. Why? Because for Jesus, every moment of every day is. He perfectly loved God and loved people. And the good news is he loves you. And he loved you so much that he goes to the cross as your and my substitute. That on the cross, he can die as if he lived your life and my life. Not loving God perfectly and not loving people as ourselves. And by God's gracious kindness to us, Christ, perfect loving God and loving people is now credited to you. So he takes your and my love toward God and people. He stands in God's place as if that's the life he lived. And now if you are willing to repent and believe by grace, it is a free gift. Nothing of yourself, no work, nothing you could do. Believing only on Christ. Then his perfect life of loving God and loving people for every single moment throughout all eternity is credited to you. That's why the gospel is what? good news that's the best news ever why because if this is if this is god's this is what's going to come at the end right i mean this is how god's going to judge us based upon how we have loved him and loved others this fulfills the law and the prophets then for you today if you're here refusing jesus then the law is standing there staring at you saying have you obeyed me perfectly Have you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of every day for your entire life? Every moment of every day of your entire life, have you loved your neighbor as yourself? That's today. If you are rejecting Jesus, then you are saying, I want to stand before a holy God and let him judge me on that basis. I want to be gentle, but guys, that would be foolish. That would be foolish to proceed into a courtroom under that weight of judgment. The good news is Christ came to save you and to rescue you from that judgment. I mean, the reality is, I mean, the Beatles were on to something, weren't they, when they said, All you need is what? Love. They were on to something, but the reality is, none of us can love. I mean, I hear the Beatles, but none of us can love God or people perfectly enough. We might need to hear the Beatles saying to us, All you need is a perfect Savior. All you need is a perfect Savior. The reality is this call to love God and others is challenging. Why? Because for many of us, we feel like what God values most is our right beliefs of doctrine and, whole, and, and these sacred truths. We feel like that what God values most is, is our, our devotion to our reading and prayer. We feel like what God values most is the way that we serve. But this very text must call us here to ask us this question. Does your sound belief and doctrine that you hold to so fast does it compel you to love God and others more? Because that's the end. That's where it should be headed. Might we ask this morning that when you and I spend time alone with the Lord, gathering just with Him, and I, you and I in the Scriptures, do you leave that time loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or does it simply become a checklist? We need to ask, does our serving, right, does our serving simply become because we want to be good church members or that's what's expected of us? Or is our servant ultimately motivated by the fact that we want to love our neighbor as ourselves? Do you see it? Behind all of our doing is the question of what's our motivation? What's driving it? And Jesus says you want to know what God's looking for. He's looking for you and I to love him and love others. So we might ask the question is today, well, what's the remedy then? Because I struggle with that. Guess what I do too? And here's the remedy. It's from a text like 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because what? He first loved us. Guys, the answer to all of this is not more performing and oh, I gotta go do better. No, it is come and receive a God who loves you despite your performance. Despite the fact that you may have failed temptation this week, despite the fact that you may have failed some tests or some classes even in school, that there is a God who loves you and I despite our performance and guys this is the good news he loves us and guess what when we experience that kind of love it transforms us to love god in return and love our neighbor as ourself it's the beauty of the gospel jesus comes to this final section of matthew 22 and it's important right so so maybe to understand a little bit right of what's happening here back in matthew chapter twenty twenty-one, 21 verse 23 the question was asked of jesus Where do you get your authority? Right. Like you've just cleansed the temple. You're healing people. They're calling out to you as Hosanna. Right. They're saying that you're the son of David. Like, where do you get that authority? And Jesus, in response, told them three parables about three sons. Right. Each each parable contains sons. And now guess what's happened next? Three questions. A question about taxes, a question about death, a question about the greatest commandment. So three plus three is what? Six. And now Matthew, closing out chapter 22, comes to one more. And if you follow the Bible, you know that the number seven is absolutely important because it's the number of completion. And it's saying to us, guys, here it is as the culmination of chapters 21 and 22 is this final question of this. And Jesus, guess what? He turns the tables and he looks at you and I and says, guess what, you've been asking me some questions, now I'm going to ask you one. And it's this question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And here's what's beautiful about this, and I just want to encourage you. I don't know if when you had tests or exams, if your teachers gave you, like, review sheets that kind of, like, really helped for the exam. Guys, this is the final review sheet. This is Jesus handing to you to say, you know what's going to happen at the end of your life? You're going to experience judgment. And it's going to be based upon whether or not you accepted or rejected me. It's based upon who do you say that I am. Jesus is giving you and I a glimpse into eternity to say today, I don't want you to end your life and end up surprised at what God expected of you. It was to receive and believe me. So this is the final. This is your question and my question. This is a basis of our eternity. Look what he says. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, verse 41, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, he's the son of David. That's the right response. That's what the psalmists say. That's what the prophets say. So they give him the right response. He says to them, how is it then that David in the spirit? Now, that's beautiful. I right? don't have much time, but just simply to say that David spoke in the spirit. So it's a reminder, the Old Testament wasn't just the words of man. It was God empowering by his Holy Spirit that what they wrote was actually the words of God. That's Jesus himself affirming that truth. So it's beautiful. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus says, you guys are right. The Messiah is the son of David. He is. That's exactly what the scriptures say. But then he goes further to say, you know what? That's correct, but it doesn't go far enough. The Messiah is more than just some humanly descendant of David. He's more than that. He is that, but he's more than that. And what he does is he goes to Psalm 110, which is, in fact, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And he says, I want you to know that the Bible declares that Jesus is more than just the human son of the line of David. And he brings us to this moment of asking ourselves, if Jesus is not simply David's son, then whose son is he? That's what he wants them to wrestle with. That's what he wants you and I to wrestle with. Consider that. If Jesus is not merely just a human descendant of David, then whose son is he? Why? Because look what he says. David himself says, the Lord, right? So this is God the Father, says to, notice David calls him, my Lord. So the Lord calls someone else Lord. Speaking to David's Lord, he says, so who is this person that is my Lord? Why? Because this one sits at the right hand of the Father, and he has all enemies put under his feet. He says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And so the question you and I have to answer is, whose son is he? And really what he's asking is, Jesus is saying, who do you think I am? And if you've been with us for the last year or so as we walk through Matthew's gospel, Matthew has been telling you and I the answer to this question. And Matthew chapter 1 and 2 was all about the birth of Jesus, saying that He is the Son of God. And then, in case you and I miss it, God is absolutely clear. Listen, this is God giving you the answers to the final exam so you will have no doubt about eternity and what it will look like and what God's going to ask or demand of you on that day. Listen to how God affirms who His Son is. He gives you the answer. Verse three, or verse seventeen of Matthew three. This is at Jesus' baptism, and behold, a voice from heaven said, "Heaven is my beloved who, son, with whom I am well pleased.'" Fast forward to Matthew chapter seventeen. Jesus transfigures. Glory is shown. A cloud fills the fills the, the mountaintop. Right, it overshadows. A voice from the cloud says, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased." Listen to him. Matthew has been affirming to us, guys question that you will be asked who is jesus and god himself affirms to us he is the son of god so the question is how will you respond to him then will you receive him or reject him watch what happens to the crowd verse 46 and no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions I think this has to remind us, guys, not to deceive ourselves into thinking that we'll stump Jesus on that day. This is the Pharisees and Sadducees. They spend and devote their lives to studying and memorizing the Scriptures. If they can't find a loophole, if they can't find a trap that will work, there is not one available. Guys, stop being deceived into thinking that you have a perfect question or you have a reasonable response for rejecting Jesus Christ. It won't hold up. I want that to be clear so you don't enter eternity thinking that you've got a question in your pocket that's going to work in the presence of God. It won't. It won't. So therefore, instead of resisting Him, why don't we receive Him? Instead of questioning Him, why don't we trust Him? Instead of walking away from Him, why don't you and I bow to Him? I think today's text, again, sets before us maybe two major questions two really important questions that we need to ask. And maybe it's the most important question that we could ever ask God. How do we best honor and obey you? And Jesus says back, by loving God and loving others. It's the words of John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciple if you what, church? Love one another. It's, it's this response. So might we ask just for a moment of application? By the way that you or I love our spouse, our children, or those who are closest to us and our family and friends, would they be able to stand today and say, that's a follower of Christ? The way they love us in the private, when nobody else sees, when they're tired, when they're exhausted. If you if you look at their life, what you'll see is a someone who loves us as they love themselves. Might we ask if we just asked around this church today, would others define you as a person who loves others as they love themselves? What about if we ask other people of different races and colors in this community and places, will they say, you know what, that's a person who loves me? Might we go even further with the greatest commandments if it's to love God and love people, and Jesus doesn't qualify which people? Then might we ask, what would our enemies say about the way we love them? What about people of different political parties? In the midst of Pride Month and LBGTQ+, Listen, that, that, that's something that we wholeheartedly reject because of the gospel. But I want to ask, when my homosexual friends and your homosexual friends say, you know what, Blake absolutely disagrees with me. He holds fast to the scriptures. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't walk away from this truth. But I hope and pray that above all, they will know that I deeply love them. That I love them. I'm not backing away from the scriptures. I'm not lessening it. I'm not going to water it down. It's true. I hope you walk away from this knowing I I try to be a straight shooter. I don't want you to walk into eternity surprised. But guys, by the way that we love people, they ought to know that we are followers of Christ. Even when we disagree with them, even when opposite political parties, even when our lifestyles disagree with what they are, we still are called to love them. I mean, isn't that how Jesus loved us? Romans 5 and 8, but God demonstrates his love toward you and I in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That's the love that you and I are called to emulate. I think to the unbeliever today, it has to be startling to consider that the majority of those who were silenced that day were not saved. Why does that matter? I think because some of you are here today thinking that when God answers this big question that you have, Then you'll believe like if that happens or if God speaks from the clouds or if this takes place, like if that absolutely happens, then I'll know there's a God. Then I'll believe this story is true about Jesus. Guys, this has to say to us today, this is Jesus answering the greatest questions. And he's telling us everything points to him. I don't know. Who do you say that Jesus is? A wise man? A healer? Man that was kind of the poor. Guys, he is those things, but he is so much more. He is the divine Son of God. Guys, I want you to know that we are not able to come to God because we know enough. We are able to come to God because we know that Jesus has done enough. It's the hope of the gospel. I hope and pray you know it, because guess what? It's Tuesday and Friday's coming. and you must much like these religious leaders must make this decision. Will you crown Jesus as king or will you crucify him? There's no middle ground. Jesus asks you today, who do you say that I am? I compel you in light of this gospel to repent and believe on him. Would you pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that you will open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. And I pray for those who have received this gospel, who have believed on Christ, Lord. I pray that we will truly love our neighbor as ourselves, even when we disagree, even when, God, what they do breaks our hearts. God, I pray that we'll be faithful to speak the truth, but to do so in love, Lord. Strengthen us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning.